Hello, Liturgy Guide listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about cities. When Dennis said he wanted to talk about cities, I said, Dennis, what do cities have to do with liturgy? And he said, well, I guess you're going to have to find out what he said on episode 44 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. <coughs> yeah, get <laughs> Oh, man. I'm going to build you a coffin. <laughs> get it coffin? <laughs> so you, yeah, so coffin? you can sit in there and just get all and the cough? coughs out. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. You're always trying to get a coffin. <laughs> or two. Dennis, oh, start talking so Jesse won't. Are we recording? This week on Just the Crust, we talk about... <laughs> yeah, isn't that like an ontological uh, incompleteness? No, pie crust is pie crust. Yeah, pie it's, crust. it's meant to receive filling. No, th- Dennis went. He went with this argument when I tried to mention raisins in oatmeal oh, cookies. So, oatmeal so cookies. just by calling something something, you know, even if it excludes what it's usually, you know, accompanied with, uh, it still can reveal its right. ontological reality. So even though I feel tricked, Dennis can't even spell ontological reality. Yeah, yeah but know. look, pie crust is pie crust. It's not pie, right? Pie has the filling. Pie filling is pie filling, not pie. So pie crust has its own but, ontological category. But but what, 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 what if you said here's a pie and it was just pie crust, then, then people would be correct. upset, right? Correct. It, and this is a good lead into what we're talking about. Yeah, I think people have already turned off the podcast. Will you stop saying that? You're giving them ideas. We're talking about the city today, right? Now you and I city? Yeah, and Jesse, what city? The idea of the city. You and Jesse and I here are a little community, right? Jesse has the soundboard. I say brilliant things and Chris coughs every now and then, right? Mm-hmm. So we each have our own role in this, in this little political entity. So you know, Aristotle talked about the city in this nice little book, uh, Aristotle's Politics, and he compares it to a ship, and he says everybody in the ship has a role. Only one person's the captain. Some everybody in the ship has a row? A role, a, row a role. But row. some of them are rowers, right? Some yeah. row. Mm-hmm. And if the rowers don't row, the ship doesn't move. And if the captain doesn't guide the rowers to row together, then the ship doesn't move well. And so this whole of this little political entity called the ship in the sea is made up of many parts, many people who have to work together as almost like a body. And so the um, notion of the city is something very important to Christians as well. Can you guess why? Well, I'm assuming it has something to do with the heavenly city. Well, right. That's the perfected version of all of us as a body doing everything we're supposed to do. So the heavenly city is Jerusalem. The earthly foretaste of that was the actual city of Jerusalem, which is up on a hill, and it was surrounded by walls, and it was full of different things. Um, But if the city is like a body, a mystical body in that sense, everyone is supposed to do what they're supposed to do, not more, not less, do it at a level of perfection, all under the headship of Christ. It's like a uh, line right out of the Second Vatican Council. Each each person should do all of, but only those things that pertain to him or her. Right. That's a, uh-huh. Yeah. So we're very con- conciliar people here. We're well, nice you talk each- about, and then you also add to that the hierarchical structure. You always talk about that. So not only are we in our own uh, departments of this corporate worship, Chris, 
but we are also in a hierarchy as well. Stop so coffee. different parts are more important than others. Right. This is the hierarchical relationship. So a city hall has the mayor in it and the mayor governs, right? The White House has the president and the president governs, but then there's the Capitol building and then there's the Supreme Court. So you have this invisible reality called the city where governing happens. But then you build buildings and sacramentalize, in a sense, that reality. So how do you know there's a president who has the authority? You build a place for the president to live. How do you know there's a Supreme Court? You build a Supreme Court building. How do you know there's legislating? You build a legislature. It's not just a functional place where the legislators can do their thing. It actually becomes a visible symbol of something that's otherwise invisible. So this is the, the classical sense of the city is called the polis, which is not the uh, place so much as it is this intellectual construct of an idea of how people live together well and govern each other well. So in the ancient world, this is how they built cities. It was in the political sense. If you're talking about building that place, then it's called the herbs, or the, when we call hmm. this urban. So, Oh, is that why the herbs, what does herbs mean? It's the physical manifestation uh, in brick and mortar of the buildings that make up the place where this invisible political and reality And that's, that's URBS, not, right. not herbs. No, URBS, like okay. urban, urbanity, urban form. I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I sometimes learn things on this podcast if you haven't figured that out. <laughs> we Don't learn, make it a habit. We learn you good. <laughs> and so politics, in the classical sense, is... It's many ticks, politics. It's the... <laughs> P-O-L-I. Oh, okay, got it. The polis. <laughs> is practicing the art of living together to perfect the character of each individual. See, this is even before Christian. I don't get along. into politics, so... Well, you should, I, I, right? Yeah, maybe you should. <laughs> you just get into ticks. <laughs> no, many of them. You know, when I've heard many times when people first live together after marriage, they have to rub out, you know, rub out some of their, their rough edges, right? Well, I always do it this way. Well, I always do it that way. Get your soap off my counter. Get your mascara off my Never wear shoes in the house if you're in my household. Right, or whatever, yeah. whatever it is, right? Leave I think the I had more edges than my wife. <laughs> Leave the window open at night when you're sleeping. The cover's on, cover's off. Sleep in a cold room, warm room. You have to practice the art of living together with, as a child with your parents and as a spouse with your spouse. And you perfect the character. This is the Christian vision of marriage, right? That everybody is supposed to lead each other to heaven. And I know Marguerite makes you much holier, Chris. And you probably helped make her a little holier, too. Um, but, and then extend that out from the family to the city. Your neighbor is supposed to lead you to a more perfected character. And what does a perfected person with a perfected character do? They live virtuously rather than a life of vice. So they look out for the neighbor. They um, you know, take care of their house. They vote properly. They don't rob each other. They serve on the city council. All those sorts of things. And so when you live justly and express this virtue through service of others, then you're happy. This is, what, this is the classical notion of the good life. And it's microcosmically expressed in the supernatural level in the church building. The church building is a, a little image of a city because everybody comes there and they hierarchically arrange their authority as Christ and they offer service to one another and to God in the liturgical actions. And then they live justly and nobly and happy, happily. So what are the elements of this city within the church? Well, this is where you have to start to say, what do people do? And therefore, what do they build? Right? So you're talking about the physical church building? Yes. Okay. Right. But the church, the people as a church are an, a concept, right? A bunch of people are an image of the mystical body. All right. It doesn't so take any form yet. Then what does an architect do? Assembles a bunch of stones, just the way people are assembled as living stones. Then there's a hierarchy. So the sanctuary is more important than the nave. The nave is more important than the narthex. The narthex is more important than the parking lot. And the and parking lot is more important than the cry room. Sometimes the parking lot is the, is the cry room. room. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
But think about it, you know, when everybody's at home doing whatever, and then they all come and assemble in a church and take the shape of the mystical body, they're conformed into this virtuous body that behaves well and offers their um, proper worship to God. This is what makes them living nobly and justly and happily. And the church building shows that. All the bricks and all the stones are arranged in the right way, in the hierarchical order. You remember Father Martis would always make this analogy of uh, the the jigsaw puzzle where all of the pieces are gathered together inside of the box, but some assembly is required. They all have to fit together in just the right way for the thing to be whole and integral right. and beautiful. And then what happens, the picture becomes clear. It radiates through that reality, which you can't see because it's a pile of pieces, suddenly becomes clear. This is claritas in the beauty. But Unless it's a puzzle of a Jackson Pollock painting, and then there's little clarity. I what think. if it were a puzzle of a picture of a pile of puzzle pieces oh my goodness a picture of a pile of puzzle pieces how alliterative Ooh. is that yeah peter piper picked a pick a puzzle, P- pieces. puzzle pieces but anyway so if the heavenly city is not just the church building but the whole if it's going to be applied across the world this is how renaissance theorists thought about cities they would say there's some things people do that are more important than others so what's the hierarchy of human activities what, what would be at the top do you think um, eating oh yeah anything that helps you survive so air eating no we're not we're not going to be on the city board those are just (laughs) those are just presumed right that you have sewage and water and garbage collection those are important but praying praying yeah worship is higher social well social would be higher than individual right so in the classical understanding of things the public good was always more important than the private good Hmm. so the city halls were always more beautiful than the private houses or the national buildings of a national import were more. Don't do it, Chris. <laughs> There's that <laughs> wild turkey again. We're always of uh, greater importance than uh, something local. So in the U.S., for instance, the state capitals would always be lesser buildings than the U.S. capital. So their domes were smaller than the U.S. capital. So we're establishing a hierarchy of things. So what we're talking about is there's basic stuff that people do, and then the city is formed as a way to express that political life and then the Christian life. Uh, and so think, think about the name, the things that people do. They worship, right? Worship is the highest duty of a human being, to con- congregate and worship. So where would the church building fall in the hierarchy of buildings in a city? Uh, pretty the high top, up, yeah. It would be at the top, right. So every time you go to a traditional European city, what's always the biggest building on the skyline? The church. The steeple, yeah. The, the, the cathedral, typically, and then the parish churches would be lesser. Um, then there would be other buildings where you don't really worship per se, but you might venerate. So there's a little spot where Saint so-and-so died and you build a little chapel there. That would be sacred, but private in a sense because it's one-on-one time. So the, the basic logic is sacred is more important than secular. Public is more important than private. So that, That's the, how we kind of get the liturgy versus devotional thing. A devotional thing is a personal thing, right. and a liturgy thing is a group something for the common good of everybody. Very good, right? A, a, a liturgy is sacred and public. A devotion is sacred and private, right? So it's a lesser thing, but still important. Now, going home and mowing your lawn is private and secular, you know, or mm-hmm. going to a casino is private Yeah, but if, that, if you have that front little strip of your property, which belongs to the government, that might be part of the common good. Well, you are serving the common good, right? So that would be yeah. a higher duty to take care of that than to mow your backyard. There was a last year or a couple of years ago when the Blackhawks, Chicago Blackhawks, were in the Stanley Cup playoffs. 
there's this thing where you're not supposed to shave your beard in the NHL. And this one guy decided that he wasn't going to mow his lawn during the playoffs. <laughs> and so the, so the neighbors were trying to, like, sue him to get him to mow his lawn. So in that sense, mowing your private lawn would be good for the common good of the neighborhood. Well, exactly. If you don't take care of your house, you become the guy that everybody, oh, man, that place is a dump. It's falling down. They don't mow the lawn. It's not so much that you care about their house. It, you, what you realize is they're not contributing to the public good. And so the, you know, the corporate body of the, of the civic level is like the corporate body of the, of the ship. If one of the people doesn't row, they're not contributing to the moving of the ship. And imagine you know, if a ship is chasing your ship and they're ready to bomb you with uh, cannonballs and you don't row. Like, a, like going a pirate in a circle. Ship? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, right, exactly. And so there's a duty, in a sense, to this corporate body so that the corporate good could happen. But then what happens is this gets spelled out in architecture. So when I knew you were going to go well, to architecture. Well, what's the city but the building out architecturally of this invisible spiritual yeah, the and herbs. political the herbs. Yes, right. The urban form is built based on the political and the the religious uh, form. So you already got the church down. The church is the biggest building in the skyline. Then some of the shrine churches might be next. What do you think would be the most important public building in a city? Uh, the government? Yeah, the exactly. Government. Yeah. We're govern, we're, wherever authority resides. So notice uh, in, in Europe, they have a palace for the, the governors. They, they, they have a house, right? They, they live in a palace. Uh, in the U.S., we have the White Palace. The White House. The Governor's Palace. House. House, right, because in America, we didn't like kings, so we lived in the, the And then the house. the house of Representatives. Right, and the Houses of Congress, the Firehouse, mm-hmm. the Schoolhouse. So we, we like houses. We don't like kings, so we re- reinvented all that terminology. But basically, authority resides in those places. The president you, moves into the house. You might reside in the dog house. I mean, it just happens. <laughs> well, that's right. That, if you've been reduced from the White House to the dog house, <laughs> that means your, your power, you know, when your wife's mad at you, you know your power is out the window. You have a little cot out there, Justin? Well, you know, the, the dog house of the White House might still be pretty nice. So, <laughs> uh, How about buying and selling things like shops? Commerce? Mm-hmm. Where does that fall in the hierarchy of human activities? Uh, probably kind of downtown. Is it sacred? No. Is it public? Yes. Is it private? No. Well, it could be. It's it's one of those. I think it could be either or because you know if the economy of your city is good and healthy, then you're doing a lot of trading and commerce. Right. So pi- buying and selling is a public leads to public good. So it's secular, but public. So think about the hierarchy of buildings. What do we do typically in the United States? What are our biggest buildings most of the time? Sacred or secular? Uh, Secular. What are they? Uh, Skyscrapers. Skyscrapers and malls, right? Mm -hmm. So you have these giant buildings for buying and selling. Those are our temples. Or you have these giant buildings for working um, in business, and those are our temples. And then you squeak together a few million dollars for a church because we can't have enough. We have to do a bake sales for a church, and we have to, you know, we can spend a hundred or five hundred million dollars on a sports stadium. So mm. when you see that, you say, "What's well, the tallest building in the skyline?" Oh, it's the Sears Tower or the Willis Tower. What does that mean? We value commerce more than uh, than other things. Although there is a building in Chicago that has, I think it's a Methodist church on yep. top of the skyscraper. And so it's you go to the very top floor and it's a church. Right. And it was the tallest building on the skyline of Chicago at one time. In fact, when it was built in the 20s, it was a whole movement called skyscraper churches because what they saw was the steeples of churches used to be the tallest buildings on the skyline. Mm-hmm. And then the skyscrapers got taller and taller and they were very worried that skyscrapers made the churches not only look uh, small, but like really small mm-hmm. <laughs> compared to the Empire State Building. St. Patrick's Cathedral looks tiny. 
So they invented this thing called the Skyscraper Church, and the Chicago Methodist Temple is one of them. And there was a height limit in the buildings in Chicago. They got permission from the city council to break it and to put this kind of gothic tower on top of the skyscraper so that the church would be the tallest building on the skyline again. Have you ever been in that? Yeah. I yeah, have really? too, yeah. It's, it's actually pretty cool. Is it still used as a church? Yeah, the church, yeah. there's like the proper church is in the bottom and then there's all these offices in between. Then there's a, a chapel up at the top, a little chapel. But now all the buildings in Chicago are so much bigger that even that looks right. small. Right, yeah. But you know what they realize is sacramentally something's wrong. That which is important, as we know, is not being expressed in an important way. We are, yeah, we are not broadcasting from the White House uh, in this podcast. No, with definitely the clanking not. heaters. Yeah. Hey, but what, what, what you're describing here, uh, see if this is an accurate application, Dennis. Like on Mundelein campus, which is laid out very intentionally and beautifully, yes. right in the middle and the tallest thing is the church. Mm-hmm. The next oh, I thought you were going to say the water tower because that's pretty tall. <laughs> well, it is taller, but it's not central. <laughs> right. The next important thing is the uh, the seat of government, the uh, administration building, and right. opposite it is the, the library. The library. And then as you go out, then you have the places of learning. Then you have the places of Eating. residence. Eating. Oh, right. sorry. Then you have uh, the sports field right. and the, the gym on the periphery. So is that is that kind of a microcosm on our campus here of this uh, this city? Would you say? Absolutely. We've talked about sacramental things a lot, all the time, right? You use material things to reveal otherwise invisible spiritual realities. Well, what's the spiritual reality of a seminary campus? Worship is the number one duty. Communal worship is the number one duty of the number one duty, rather than, <laughs> pri- rather than private prayer. Double duty. Right? And then governing, uh, priestly activity, and the, the collection of authority of the, of the books. That would be the prophets, right, who are telling us about what God wants us to know. So there are three central buildings on the campus, the chapel for the priesthood of Christ, the uh, rector's office for the kingship of Christ, mm-hmm. and the library or the prophecy, prophet Christ. So nice. it's very, very interesting. It's an image of Jesus right there, right at the center. So right. how do we know which buildings, because they, they are similar in size if they're not the chapel, how do we know which buildings are more important than the other buildings? Well, there's a whole convention, and you know we, we encounter these things all the time, although we don't think of it quite this way. If you go to Washington, D.C., and you see a big, giant, white marble building with a lot of columns, you probably know it's an important government building. Mm-hmm. You see a low-slung glass and concrete building, you probably know it's a shop or whatever where the government workers get their breakfast in the morning. This is what we call uh, decorum, and it applies to everything, but it applies to architecture too, and it's the proper arrangement and treatment of things according to their status in the place of things. So it's actually not that hard. There's kind of a list of them, Um, but buildings that are less important take their forms from something that's more important. So a state capital will borrow from the U.S. capital, but it will be smaller. They might have fewer columns. It might be made of brick instead of marble. Uh, so we see that on our campus. The chapel is the most elaborate. The dorms are less elaborate, but they kind of borrow the materials and forms uh, from there. Something bigger is more important than something smaller. Very obvious. Mm-hmm. What's the biggest church of all Christendom? Because of the most important church. St. Peter's in Saint Rome. St. Peter's in Rome. And they were very clear that it had to be, or else it wouldn't match its own ontological I heard you reality. can fit like a Boeing 747 inside that thing. Don't they even have on the floor uh, markings of, you know, St. Patrick's Cathedral? Oh, yeah, come that's to this right. Point yeah, there's right. little medallions that say uh, how big other churches can right. fit And they just them. built this new um, Mormon um, church in Philadelphia, and it's bigger than the Catholic Cathedral in Philadelphia. And it's quite beautiful, this new Mormon thing. It's classical and it's stone. But they're making a statement, hey, guess what? <laughs> you're the past, mm-hmm. we're the future. And so if you're going to build St. Peter's, it's got to be the biggest church in the world, or else your authority as you know, the leading 
head of the body as the pope. And um, even then, they have those big columns. So there's three rows of columns on either side, and they're meant to look like arms that are welcoming you Don't in. Don't bring up columns. We'll never get oh out of this God. podcast. Oh, well, columns are like verbs and nouns. They're the columns building, are people. They're the building blocks. But they're also markers of importance. The more columns you have, the more important your building. The bigger they are, the more important your building. The more elaborate they are, the more important the building. So you can make a bunch of square glass and steel boxes, but basically they're all going to look the same. You put different sizes and numbers and types of columns on buildings, suddenly there's a hierarchy uh, between them. But let's get back to the other list, because you asked, mm-hmm. how do you know if a building's important? Right. What do you think is more important, something central or something on the edge of town? Central. central. Right, obviously. And so in a lot of the old Roman cities, you know, they had a, the Romans would lay out the street grid, and the Catholics, the Christians came later, so the cathedrals are off in the edge of the city because that was the only land they could get. But ideally, they wanted to be in the center of the city. And sometimes they'd actually expand the city in one direction and not the other hmm. to kind of recenter. Yeah, because St. Peter's... City. Well, first of all, Vatican, it's its own technical country, but in terms of Rome itself, it's not really in the center of Rome. How come? Because it's built over the place where Peter was buried, and so it had to be buried outside the city, so it was peripheral from Mm -hmm. the very beginning. Dennis, you're familiar with uh, our cathedral in uh, La Crosse. Yes. Uh, and it's, I think it's just by a uh, happy uh, coincidence that this is, in the ca- this is the case. But it's on Main Street. And because of how the river runs and the bluffs run, at one point, all of the streets, they make a little jog. And so if you look at, from the river, if you look down Main Street, uh, it, it appears like the cathedral is right in the middle of the street, right in the middle of the road, Main Street. And so that really, again, I, I don't think city planners no, planned no, it this they way. Did that. Well, I don't know if the city planned it that way, but I'm sure the people bought that plot of land specifically mm. with that in mind. Because that's how cities would be planned. You'd have a long avenue, and then the street would end, and they'd say, that is the vista that everybody sees at the end, and let's put the church there. And it would actually block streets sometimes. There's a very famous church in Charleston where they built the porch of the church over the street. So you're going down the street, and you shouldn't, you should be able to drive by, except if you do, you'll drive into the columns of the porch of the church <laughs> because they want it to be an interruption of the natural flow to show how important it is. So that's a very particular um, manner of city planning. If you have this in mind, right? This is political idea called the city. It has a hierarchical arrangement. Some things are more important than others. You put the more important things in the important places. And then sometimes you even make people walk around them in order to realize how important they, they are. If you come to our campus, you go into the library, there's a giant flagpole right in the front of the door. You have to walk around the flagpole to get into the library in the administration building because one's the United States flag and one's the flag of the Vatican. Constantly it's a reminder, Rome and America. You're an American priest to be who's nonetheless loyal to the Roman Catholic Church. Some churches, they put their, their baptismal font right in the middle of the aisle. That right. you, you, you have to pass it. You have to, it's a constant reminder that it's kind of in your way to get into the church. Right, exactly. It's the same kind of thing. Uh, so there are two more of these uh, elements in architecture. One is that if it's freestanding, it's more important than something embedded. So imagine you have a church, freestanding church building. You can see it on every side. It has a big tower. Or your church is just apartment 212 in a 50-office story building, a 50-story office building. You can't see it. It's not its own thing. It's just tucked in something else. It, you know, it but lacks you, claritas? It does lack claritas because it doesn't reveal itself. It's just, you know, you know you, know you have kidneys, but we can't see them. Right? But if your kidney is sitting there on the table, and you're like, whoa, why is there a kidney on the table? Or if you wake up in a bath of ice. Without yeah. a kidney, yeah, then that's a problem too. Definitely claritas. Right. So when you build a church, you know, you might... Find an important spot where everybody can see it, and you might build a tower so it can be seen. One last thing, something well-designed and highly finished is more important than something less so. So if you hire a crappy architect, 
I shouldn't say crappy, should I? If you hire a lesser art skilled architect to design an important building and the architect doesn't do it well, it's always going to look unimportant because you didn't get the best you could. Or if you didn't finish it well, you didn't uh, smooth out the marble or you didn't make careful decisions about the inscriptions. Or even the quality of the, the material too. So if you didn't get like the best brick that you could get. Or the right. Or you, you know, if you're going to make a cathedral, you might make it out of marble and then all the parish churches might be made of brick. That establishes the hierarchy uh, from building to building. So you see how we've talked a lot about a church building or the church life as a hierarchical arrangement within itself. But then you can extend this out to the landscape. And so the houses will look like houses. They'll usually be small. They'll be private. They won't be all that elaborate unless it's the house of someone who governs, like the White House. And then it'll be a house, but more elaborate. And then the shops will be more elaborate than the houses because it's public. Then the places where you venerate will be lesser than the places where you um, assemble to worship God, but more than the house. You see, this is a Christian worldview that's just a construct in the mind, but then you ex externalize this out into the world. This is what most European cities do. Most American cities don't. Because the things that govern how we build cities now are you have zoning so that there's no industry near the houses. So you, you have uh, a cluster of houses, a um, bunch of wiggly streets, and there's no public buildings, there's no park, there's no city hall. And if you do have a city hall, it's probably the cheapest thing that people will build so that the taxes are low instead of becoming the sacramentalization of the virtuous activity of governing nobly and living justly. And so we don't really live in a sacramentally rich world in liturgy often, and we really don't live in the, the suburban, sacramentally rich world either. You started Sub talking about suburbs. Suburbs. Well, suburbs, right. It's, yeah. less, it's less than the city. Man, I live in the suburbs. <laughs> you started talking about Aristotle's uh, politics, but a lot of what you're talking about here reminds me of, um, I guess it would be Plato's metaphysics. Now, St. Augustine, at the fall of Rome, all the Roman citizens were blaming the Christians. It's because they turned away from their Roman gods that uh, the city of Rome fell. And Augustine wrote this book called uh, City of God. Mm -hmm. And with this uh, Platonic philosophy, the idea was is that we have an ideal city, which is in Jerusalem, where there's a perfect hierarchy and order and harmony and concord. And that uh, ideally, the city of man ought to be a sacramentalization of the city of God. And if it does, then it has this proper, properly ordered hierarchy of parts. So, yeah, Augustine in the city of God, with the help of uh, Plato, really lends uh, our city, what you're describing here, to a proper sacramentalization. Right. So imagine this. So your town is a typical secular town. It has a lot of shopping centers, a lot of parking lots. The city hall is a low-slung you know, room tucked into one of the shopping centers. There aren't very many churches. The ones they have are sort of you know, little metal buildings, the cheapest thing they could find. Uh, and all the wealthy people are building million-dollar homes for themselves. They have granite marble, you know, uh, marble countertops and all that. So you have a problem where all the private buildings are very elaborate and all the public buildings are kind of dumpy. Suppose, you know, the Holy Spirit lands on this town and everybody has a conversion and suddenly they look around and they say, our architecture is totally wrong. What would they do? They would write it. How would they do it? They would move into the public buildings and make the private buildings. Uh, <laughs> well, they'd either, they'd either rebuild, but they would, uh, they would adjust their hierarchy according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, right. You look at your town map and you say, in the center of town is a big void called parking lot for the mall. You know what we're going to do? We're going to tear down the mall or we're going to build the big giant church right in the middle of the parking lot. And we're going to make public parks where people can come and live out the, the common good. Nothing wrong with living in a nice house, but it's not. Gonna, they're not going to be the nicest buildings in the city. The shopping will be shopping, 
and theaters are another thing that are part of the classical city. We didn't talk about that, but what do you think the, the high calling of a theater is? We tend to think of it now as just you know, shoot 'em up entertainment, but what Probably was a play too. in ancient Greece for? Well, oh, they taught they taught the morals. They also taught the um, they taught the stories of the gods the and gods. goddesses. Right. So that was how do you live? What do you need to know? So the theater was always a place where you imagined things, not as they are, but as they should be. And you imagine, Whoa, super you know, deep. I, well, it's actually, not, it's deep, but it's not that hard. Right? If you go to a play, nobody on the stage is actually that person. Right? If I play George Washington, <laughs> I might put the wig on and wear his outfit, but I'm not George Washington. What were you in the jeweler's shop, Jesse? Um, I don't know. I don't remember the character's name, but there were three couples and there was like a, um, a to be engaged couple. And then there was a recently married couple. And then there was an older couple that had been married for a mm. while. So I was in the, I was one of the older couples, the, the uh, husband. Mm. Yeah. So I think it, well, I hate to cut it short, but we got to go get some Christ life. So we got to go to right. mass. But here's the big thing, right? Yeah. The, the life of the church is not limited to the church building. It itself is hierarchically arranged, but you can extend the Christian worldview out across the landscape, and it's very clearly associated with what you do. This is why architects need to know, and city planners need to know a Christian worldview so they can decide. Important things look important. They go in the important places. And then what happens is everybody who comes here says, there's this beautiful church in the city of town. Oh, the church must be the most important thing in the world. And then mm -hmm. they start to become habituated to the, the order of things as God wants I it. I wonder, too, if what you're describing, people naturally know this. I mean, think of destination cities. They're the ones that you were describing. People aren't planning a vacation to a, a, an un, a, a undescript, indescript a suburban area. Nondescript. Nondescript, yeah. okay. Uh, they're going to these places that right. you... And describe. how are the beautiful cities usually arranged? Hierarchically, mm. the churches are the most beautiful. There's public, uh, dominance of public things like parks, Piazzas, cafes, outdoor. The streets are not highways where you risk your life crossing them. They're usually narrow so that the people have the freedom to walk the streets. And so this is the Christian worldview. We live together. God is at the top. Our private things are private. Our public things are public. Our sacred things are at the top of the hierarchy. And we delight in being together as a community. This is the mystical body expressed in architectural terms. Amen. And Catholic churches are suburbs of the heavenly city. So anyway, I think we're going to no, go. No, they're not. Oh, right. Sorry. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> so we're going to go get some Christ life, and then we're going to answer a question. So why go to the liturgical institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend a liturgical institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Chris, does it See, I'm, uh, I know this is probably not a big deal, but I don't want to give you the question because Chris, this is kind of internal. But he's thinking about it. You, you ask the question, I'll do the, the answer. He's getting annoyed with us. I'm leaving in 10 minutes. Go home. Go home. What's the answer? What's the question? 
The question this week comes from Anonymous, and Anonymous says, if my wife is going to be confirmed in the church, can I be her sponsor? Uh, I've never heard of this as a possibility. I guess my wife was confirmed when we were dating. She chose me, uh, she chose to not make me her sponsor yes. in case we were going to break up at some point. I don't know. <laughs> that would be awkward, yeah, wouldn't, it? wouldn't it? Yeah. But wow. uh, I guess what is the, what's the answer? Uh, the short answer is that a spouse or fiance can serve as a sponsor for confirmation or godparent for baptism. This uh, uh, is a change in the 1983 Code of Canon Law that, that was not the case before, right? Because think of the nature of a parent, or by extension, a godparent. Mm-hmm. That's a different sort of relation that, that's happening between uh, spouses. And so kind of by a, a certain ontology of parenting in children, um, that was seen as incongruous. And thus, mm-hmm. uh, uh, spouses could not be sponsors or godparents. Uh, one to the other. Do you understand that? That makes okay. sense. Yeah. Uh, this has changed now. So in the 1983 Code of Canon Law, it will list, uh, when it, when you look in the section on, in the code on uh, sponsors for confirmation, basically what it says is, go back to what it says about godparents for baptism. They're the same. They're the same. Oh, so both instances. They're the same. Okay, got it. Yeah. Uh, and so you can read in uh, Canon 874, to be permitted to take on the function of sponsor or godparent a person must, and it lists this various, these various things. But what you will not find in there is be uh, married to, be a spouse, or be a fiancé. So it's uh, it's permitted legally, but as you know, you started to suggest there may be some other prudential reasons why this ought not to be the case. Let's say that you know there is a there is a, a you know breakup before the, the the wedding. Yeah. You know, also too, I mean, what what a sponsor is supposed to do is to assist that person come to a full understanding of the life of of grace and of faith in the church. And, you know, so let's say, um, you know, I have some certain questions about the Sixth Commandment or family planning or something like that. Uh, It might be easier and more prudent for me to discuss that with someone other than my spouse or my fiance, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, to get maybe a different uh, perspective. Obviously, it should be discussed, too, with one's uh, spouse or uh, but in a different sort of context than that conversation would it have with a sponsor. So there may be a prudential reasons why this shouldn't be the case, but at least on paper and according to law, uh, a fiancé or a spouse can serve as a sponsor. Okay, I got a curveball for you, Chris. What about if my dad was going to be confirmed in the church? Could I be, as his son, his sponsor? Wow, wow that is a curveball. Yeah. I know that your father at least couldn't be your uh, godparent, because okay? mm-hmm. he's already your natural parent. Okay. I wonder, uh, this is only speculation, I don't know the answer, well, but I, I wonder if by that same rationale, the relationship between natural fathers and their sons, um, if that precludes a parent from being a godparent, I wonder if by that same reasoning, a son couldn't be... Well, part of the reason for having godparents is if the parents can't fulfill the duties of raising the child Christian, right? So obviously your parent... Well, if you're baptized later, though, like... A, you yeah, know, but a son might be able to make sure if his well, that's father's father's dead that his father I mean, gets I've, raised I've in the faith. Yeah, but but he could do that without being his godparent. I mean, a son should naturally have that obligation to his father already, whether he's a right. godparent or not. Right, but I've seen a couple instances... on my own grandpa? <laughs> yes, from the stupids. Yeah, yeah. Well, I always thought that Jesus was his own grandpa because if he's the father of himself. And, but anyway, that's, that's probably heretical. Mm-hmm. But I've seen a couple instances where parents have come into the church mm-hmm. because 
yeah. you know, their their son was in focus or something like that, mm-hmm. and they started learning more. And and uh, the child was, you know, uh, discipling their parent yeah. into the faith. So I could see an instance where they might be an integral part of their formation as a Catholic, maybe not as a human being, obviously, mm-hmm. the parent-child relationship, but probably best common sense is to not do that. Yeah, if I had to, if I had to guess, I would say the answer might be probably be no. But again, I that's mm-hmm. that's just a guess. I don't see anything in the code or in the in the book. My new goal is to just think of questions for you that you've never heard before. Oh, so well, that won't be that. All hard. right, Chris doesn't know the. <laughs> There's answer. a lot of things I don't know. Chris doesn't know the. Answer. I know the answer is you just know the wrong questions. <laughs> All right, if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. Thank you. Chris isn't happy with us. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.